And this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them to minister unto me in the priest's office. Take one young bullock and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and cakes unleavened tempered with oil, and wafers unleavened anointed with oil, of wheat and flour shalt thou make them. And thou shalt put them into one basket, and bring, the, and bring them in the basket with the bullock and the two rams, and Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring to, unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and shalt wash them with water. And thou shalt take the garments, and put upon Aaron the coat, and the, ro- and the robe of the ephod, and the ephod, and the breastplate, and, the, and gird him with the curious, curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head, and put the holy crown upon the mitre, Then shalt thou take the anointing oil, and pour it upon his head, and anoint him. And thou shalt bring his sons, and put coats upon them, and thou shalt gird them with girdles, and Aaron and his sons, and put the bonnets on them, and the priest's office shall be theirs for a perpetual statute, and thou shalt consecrate Aaron and his sons. And thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the t- tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the, alt- of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards and the caul that is above the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them and burn them upon the altar. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung thou shalt burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. On May 6th of this year, many eyes throughout the world will look toward Westminster Abbey to see a sight that hasn't appeared in the world since nearly, for nearly seven years. In fact, 70 years. In fact, one month shy of 70 years exact. Now, we may prefer to scoff and comment about this event that uh, Charles is not our king, even some within the United Kingdom would like to make that statement. But that reality of our uh, separation from that country does not negate the global interest that, is, that will be inevitably shown in this coronation. And if there is one constituency that ought to advocate for the continuance of the hereditary monarchy, it is the news media and its advertisers who no doubt will uh, be broadcasting it live. But over, two, three, but over 3,000 years ago, a new nation surrounded one tent to observe the ordination of a priest and not a king. To them, it was more important than the coronation, the anointing of any political figure. It was the present object of all their living hopes. In him, they saw their own approach to God, a gift no royal or political figure could ever match. And probably many of them didn't even see the ceremony. And they may not have heard anything more than the sound of washing and animal noises and the sizzle of flesh on fire. Perhaps there was someone there who relayed the action for those who were surrounding the tent. But we know, of course, that God commanded no word to be spoken. That is, is, he didn't forbid any word to be spoken, but we know of nothing that the Lord required to be said during the ceremony. 
Now, our Protestant ordination ceremonies look nothing like that old priestly event. For we have a high priest, a great high priest, who fulfills and ends that institution. And our spiritual leader, leadership no longer points forward to a Christ to come. Instead, it follows our great high priest. And that makes this passage significant, not just to pastors and elders alone, but to all Christians who serve as priests of the Most High God. For we are the fulfillment of that promise to Israel that he would make unto them a kingdom of priests. The rites given to the high priest communicate something about us as believers in the new covenant. That what was necessary to consecrate him to enter into the presence of God was necessary also to consecrate us. That how the Lord enabled him to approach the presence is what is, it was, is, what is needed for us. It shows us what our great high priest, what Jesus has done for us. And today, as we look at the beginning of the ceremony, I want us to consider three of these things that share a commonality. We see our need of washing, of anointing, and of atoning. Of washing, anointing, and atoning. It seems impossible to bury the lead with this passage. At the heart of our preparation is to enter into the presence of the Lord, is that God must deal with our sin. And this is the theme that uh, we find and can trace throughout these three initial sacraments and rites. We see this first in the requirement of washing in the con- consecration of the priest. We see this in the preliminaries and in the presentation. As the Lord begins the instructions for the ceremony, he instructs Moses on the things he will need in the consecration. Look at verse 1. And this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them, to hollow them, to minister them, and to be in the priest's office. Take one young bullock and two rams without blemish. The Lord begins, this is how you will consecrate them. You will make them holy. You will fill their hands. You will uh, be able to, to enable them to do their work. This is what brings them in to their office. And we first see the animals needed for the sacrifice here. And the notable description being that they are to be without blemish. Now, this description warrants note, for we cannot hold it to be an absolute statement. What in this world is there that has no blemish at all? And yet, the requirement means that the animal has no physical deformity or injury that would devalue its use as an offering. Yet the language itself tells us something about what it takes to enter into the presence of God. For us, no mere lack of injury or deformity will do. Those who would approach the holiness must have spiritual perfection, must have no moral blemish at all. One sin could cause the annihilation of a person in the presence of the absolute, holy, almighty, and just God. As I was writing this, I was thinking about uh, the, the reality of the God that we serve, that His holiness is just one part of this idea that makes entering into His presence so fearful, is that He is holy, that He is almighty, that He is just, that He cannot overlook the fact that we have unholiness, that His uh, almighty and sovereign character uh, signals what, it, what judgment and justice is due to us. It is an utter lack of sin that is needed to stand before God. 
And that is what is represented, represented in these words without blemish, even though that sacrifice could not fully deal with sin. It was pointing to one that would. We see that utter lack of sin, though, also in other parts of the offering. Look at verse 2. And unleavened bread with cakes, and cakes unleavened, tempered with oil, and wafers unleavened, uh, anointed with oil, of wheat and flour, thou shalt make them. We note here the, act, the repeated requirement that all of these things be made without leaven. We remember that this lack of leaven in the Passover reflected the haste with which Israel left Egypt. It wasn't that they uh, had to leave Egypt. It was the fact that the deliverance of the Lord happened so quickly that they didn't even have time to let their bread rise. The message of the Passover is not we were kicked out of Egypt. It is that the Lord rescued us after 400 years of slavery so quickly that he is so powerful that he rescued us with so much rapidity that we couldn't even let our bread rise. We also remember that the Lord's prohibition of leaven in the Passover directions before the departure of Israel from Egypt also signals a connection between leaven and sin. The forbidding of leaven throughout the entirety of the house, the absolute uh, eradication of all leaven, signaled the necessity of purity in the worship of the Lord. Again, we see the importance of spiritual purity and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord as the author of Hebrews reminds us. Moses is to bring all of this to the finished tabernacle. Look at verse 3. And thou shalt put them into one basket and bring them in the basket and the bullock and the two rams. I started to speculate about why Moses requires all of these things, all of this bread stuff to be put into a basket, into one basket. And then I reflected that sometimes a basket is just a basket. It is what the Lord requires, and that is enough. Probably it is written this way to ensure that all the necessities are present before the ceremony begins, that Moses doesn't forget something. Now, those of us who know what it is to have a plan and forget something can readily appreciate why all this is to be put and pre prepared before the ceremony begins. There is more meaning in the presentation of the priest before the present presence of the Lord. Look at verse 4. And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the congregation of the uh, thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall wash them with water. It is probable that although the instruction for the making of the labor has not appeared yet in Exodus, it is that which is used uh, most likely in their washing. Now I have to confess something. I, up until this week I was laboring under a certain impression. Even pastors labor under false impressions dealing with uh, the word. I've always thought that non-Levites, the regular rank and file of Israel, was forbidden to enter the court, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The door of the tabernacle, the word that is used here, does not refer to the door of the court, but it is used in Exodus 26:36 of the door of the sanctuary. This is where Aaron and his sons are brought to be washed, and this is where Moses assembles the congregation to be present when this event actually takes place. Now, granted that the court had been set up, it is likely that only the elders as representatives of the people crowd into the courtyard to see the consecration of Aaron, because if you did the math, did, did the math and I did the math, you couldn't fit uh, the totality of Israel into the court. 
but the, re- but the elders certainly could. Now, whether this washing was a complete washing, whether they uh, stripped Aaron and his sons down and washed everything, or whether it was a ceremonial uh, washing uh, remains uncertain, but the message remains the same. What is being said here, what is being portrayed here is that Aaron and his sons need to be washed to enter into the presence of God. This washing is not merely the traditional preparation to enter into the presence of a king or a potentate. God's washing must be perfect and complete. We may well ask if this external washing wasn't really just external or whether it meant anything internally. After all, isn't the inward washing more important than the external? Didn't Jesus teach this? Well, certainly he does. However, we must remember what he said to the Pharisees about their method of tithing. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done and not to leave the other undone. Jesus condemns their omission of the inward matters of the law character flaws while affirming their outward observance. You should have been tithing in this way. Your problem wasn't with your tithing. The problem was you excused your lack of these other deeper inward aspects with these outward performances. Just because we may work on our character doesn't mean that we can ignore what we ought to do in our actions. Sanctification is much more comprehensive than we like to imagine we are to be holy throughout all of us. But we prefer myopia. We prefer to concentrate on one thing to the exclusion of others. We like simplicity. And yet total depravity teaches us that as all parts of us suffer the corruption of sins, all parts of us require the application of grace and holiness. This means we cannot content ourselves with progress in one area, be it holiness in thought or desire or feeling or action or speech. We cannot say we are making progress in our speech while we leave everything else to itself. Indeed, a solitary progress will quickly unravel as the other parts of our being tend to devolve spiritual progress back to the sinful norm. Instead, this totality of washing, this this perfection, requires us to give attention to all parts of our being. How we think, what we want, our emotions, our actions, our speech. When we identify a a sin, it is well for us to ask, what, what were we thinking? What began this path of sin? And how do we apply grace to be the beginning of this path? To prepare battlements at the beginning of temptation. And this way we take seriously the washing that we have in Jesus. Now, you might say to me, well, that sounds like a bunch of works. And it sounds like more than we can do. Well, I'm glad you think that way because the good news is that the Holy Spirit is given to you. The message of the gospel is that you have victory. That this process of sanctification, as daunting as it can be, and it ought to be daunting to us, is aided by the Holy Spirit, that victory is assured. 
that what washes us isn't our own hands, but the blood of Jesus applied to us, applied by the Holy Spirit. And as we give attention to these things, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, triumphs over sin in us. You see the washing, but secondly, I want us to see the anointing. Attached to the theology of washing, we also have the concept of anointing. We see the doctrine evidenced in two acts. One involves clothes and the other involves oil. Moses clothes Aaron first in verse 5, and thou shalt take the garments and put upon Aaron the coat, the robe, the ephod, the ephod of the breastplate, and gird him with the curious girdle of the ephod. Notice the garments are mentioned, and there's rather one that's left out. The undergarments aren't mentioned, and we assume that they were already worn. There is something significant in this act that culminates in a sort of coronation. Look at verse uh, 6. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head and put the holy crown upon the mitre. Again, not to bury the lead, but the robing of Aaron indicates his transition from an ordinary man to the high priest. He doesn't have this office, this identity, this ability without these garments which the Lord has ordered for him. He is chosen of God and God puts clothes him for the task that he has set for him. The fact that he puts these clothes on for the first time in front of the sanctuary, the physical representation of the presence of God indicates that even though human hands crafted these garments, it is the Lord who is bestowing these vestments upon him. Yes, there were physical human beings that uh, sewed and wove these things together, that set the stones, that crafted the chains. It was Moses that put these things on Aaron, but they were given by the direction of the Lord. They They are the way the Lord sets Aaron apart for the work that he has for him. Moses then must anoint Aaron. Look at verse 7. Thou shalt take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Now, if you look at verses 6 and 7, you notice something that probably we we don't think about because normally we think about people being anointed uh, bareheaded. But here Aaron is presumably anointed after his headdress is put on. The turban and that plate. And I think we see a connection between what is written on that plate and the meaning of the anointing. The clothing and the anointing speak with one voice. They say that this one is holy unto the Lord. They signal the election of this one by God to this office, that God has chosen this one to do this work. They say that the Lord alone grants the priest the ability to draw near to him. The Lord alone is is the one who grants anyone the ability to draw near to him. It is the way that God changes their identity before Aaron presumably had no right to draw near to God. Afterward, he and his descendants will be the only ones that God gives the right to draw near to him. It changes his identity. No longer is Aaron just the brother of Moses. He is now the high priest. It changes not only the identity of Aaron, but also the identity of his sons. 
Verses 8 and 9, And thou shalt bring his sons, and put coats on them, and shalt gird them with girdles, Aaron and his sons, and put the bonnets on them. And the priest's office shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. And thou shalt consecrate, consecrate Aaron and his sons. Their garments and their anointing signal a change in their understanding of their own nature. They are now priests. And this change includes greater responsibility and greater accountability. Nadab and Abihu face the fire of God because they grossly violate their new identity. You can see this in the story because Moses tells Aaron and the rest of his sons not to mourn because the oil of anointing is still on their heads. Nadab and Abihu violated what that anointing meant when they committed their sin. Offering strange fire is bad enough for anyone, but it especially is bad for those who have been granted access to the, most, to the holy place. It em- earns immediate execution for the neophyte priests. There is both comfort and warning in this picture for us, that we wear the righteousness of Christ, the robes alone which can make us able to enter into the presence of God when we were not perfect, when we were not blameless, when we had blemishes all over, we now wear Christ's robes which are, have no spot, have no blemish, because he was the spotless, blemishless lamb for us. We have the oil of the Spirit on our heads. We have been anointed of God, not in the same way Jesus was, but as those who have been uh, found in him and robed in him. On our head, for we obtain our identity not from ourselves or our mind, but from above. We are not who we identify as. Rosaria Butterfield, in a conversation on mortification of spin, uh, talking about the identity politics of this age, said that identifying as a Christian means nothing. What matters is whether or not we have been justified. To put it in, our con- in the context of this passage, whether we or not we identify with Christ means nothing. It is whether or not Christ has given us his identity. God's work in us truly forms our identity, the identity of a Christian. For we are not always what we do, or Romans 7 means nothing to us. Ultimately, we are what God is making us to be, and he who began a good work in us will continue to perform it to the day of Christ. But that doesn't mean we can let go and let God in our quest for sanctification. Rather, it means We have a greater responsibility. The warnings of death and the Lord's Supper reflect this concept. The death of Ananias and Sapphira perhaps remind us that sins against our identity in Christ are deadly serious. We will never face the ultimate sanction for our disobedience in hell, but we may face the immediacy of God's discipline even in physical death. Yet the stories of Nadab and Abihu will linger for us later in the Bible. Here, this passage is calling us to remember who we are, to live according to that dictum, to rejoice in the fact that we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness, we have been anointed by His Spirit, and we have access to God. But it calls us to obedience. It calls us to worship. 
God has chosen us to be his people. God has chosen you to have access to the throne. And what will you do, Christian, with that access? For all your faults, for all your unworthiness, for all the blemishes that you have, he chose you to draw near. Will you draw back? Will you not draw near? Will you not find uh, fulfillment and joy and peace in the presence of God? Will you futilely try to thwart the purpose of grace? We see washing and anointing. And finally, I want us to look at the work of atonement. At the end of the section of the priest's moral and spiritual state, we find the central necessity It's all good, this washing and anointing, but what enables the washing and anointing? What enables sinful man to go into the presence of God? How will God deal with sin? Man needs to be washed. Man needs to be clothed. Man needs to be anointed. But sin is ever the problem. And we find the solution in the combination of the laying on of hands and burning outside the camp. The laying on of hands that is practiced here is not the same that is practiced today. Today, uh, when we lay hands on someone, uh, not to, and to arrest them, but laying hands in an ordina- ordination ser- service, uh, it represents fidelity to the New Testament and the continuance of the office from the apostolic age. Here it means something uh, more primitive in the uh, theological sense. Look at verse 10. And thou shalt cause the bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. We cannot but understand it, this activity in the context with the end of this section. In verse 14, it is a sin offering. This is a sin offering, and this colors what is happening at the beginning. They're putting their hands on the animal. The laying on of hands means, at the very least, identification with the animal, if not the imputation of sins to the animal. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron will put his hand upon an animal and read off all the sins of the nation. Not sure exactly what that meant. If that was a literal statement, he would be there for quite a while. But probably he was giving a summary of everything. Maybe he was just going through the Ten Commandments. Here we, don't know, we aren't told that they are reading off their sin, but in some way they're identifying with their, this animal and probably in the terms of the imputation of sin. This ritual signals the only way the Lord provides that the sin of the, of the priest should be dealt with, and that is through sacrifice. Look at verse 11. Thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle, of the congregation. We cannot but see that the death judgment ordered on men for sin is conveyed to the animal. At the very least, what is happening to the animal is that which should be happening to these people for their sin. And in that way, we can understand the use of the blood. In verse 12, And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock, and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger, and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. The Lord will later declare in Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it unto you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh the atonement for the soul. The rest of the sacrifice continues the ritual significance. Look at verse 13. 
And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards, and the coal that is above the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, and burn them upon the altar. Fat fire has a purgative effect, yet there is a sense of destruction here. The chief parts, you know, we, we might wonder, why these parts? It seems rather strange that these parts are, 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 are cut out for this particular pur purpose. Well, many commentators, and I think they're probably right, suggest that these parts are especially warranted for destruction because they are the ones that, if captured, uh, other nations surrounding Israel use these parts for augury, to read the signs, to figure out the future. And here the Lord says, no, you're not going to use them for augury. You're not going to steal them out of the sacrifice. You are going to get rid of them. They are holy to the Lord and thus consumed before him. But interestingly, the rest of the carcass has a different fate. Look at verse 14. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung thou shalt burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. A commentator suggests, and I think they're right, that this, you know, why is part of it burned on the altar and part of it is burned outside the camp? After all, if you read forward from verse 15 and following, the next offering, everything is burned on the altar. The whole thing. So why is that sacrifice burned completely on the altar and this sacrifice has some of it burned on the altar and everything else has to be burned outside the camp? And the suggestion is that the rest of the body is considered sinful through the hands of the sinner that has been put upon it. That somehow that imputation of identity or sin is so corrupting that the rest of the animal cannot be burned upon the altar but must be burned outside the camp. Consider the laying on the hands has made the body of the sacrifice so defiled that even its destruction, not just its presence, its very destruction cannot be performed in the sanctuary, cannot be performed in the court, cannot be performed in the camp, but must be taken and eradicated outside the camp. Even the world is too holy in some sense to be profaned by its continued existence. It is not left to rot outside the camp in the place of the dead, but must be completely and utterly destroyed, consumed by fire. If you thought sin was a, not a serious issue, if you thought our sin was not a serious issue, reflect upon what the sin offering says about sin. How severe its just punishment is. Well, my friend, have you understood the severity of sin? Behold, animal, innocent animals fated to destruction all because of a sinful human hand. And can you claim that your hands are any cleaner than the hands of the priests so many years ago? Certainly we cannot. No, we all deserve the same fate, the burning not of a temporary fire, but the eternal flames of hell. 
Yet just as that animal stood for that priest, so the Lord has sent a better sacrifice when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus is a better sacrifice because he is God, made man a sacrifice of infinite worth. He's a better sacrifice because he lived a perfect life and was therefore a spot, the Lamb of God, without spot and blemish. And he died as that calf died, outside, was burned outside Jerusalem, outside the camp. As a sacrifice, he willingly laid down his life, but he also authoritatively took it again in his resurrection. That resurrection proved the acceptance of that sacrifice by the Father. And the question for you is whose hands were put upon the head of that sacrifice? Were yours? Scripture tells us the sacrifice of Christ applies to all, any who believe. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? I urge you to turn from your sin and to follow him. Now, the author of Hebrews uses the sin offering in this way. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. The author of Hebrews tells us as Jesus calls his disciples to bear his cross, as Jesus is our example of how we are to live, we are to bear, carry the reproach of the cross of Christ. Well, that reproach may not tempt us to return to Judaism as in the days of, the, of this book when it was written, the book of Hebrews, we still face the reproach of the cross. Though we may not face it with the same severity as our brothers and sisters around the world who face death because of it, we still face neglect and indifference and ridicule for the sake of the cross. Can we shrink back? From the reproach of the cross when death threatens others. Jeremiah asks this haunting question, if thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, how canst thou contend with horses? If in the land of peace wherein thou trustest they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? We are contending with footmen, even less than footmen. We are, we are in a land of peace dealing with ridicule, and therefore ought to bear the reproach of Christ. You see, we cannot run the race of others. We cannot run the race for our brothers and sisters outside in other nations, but we can run our own. We are called to run our own, and so I'll conclude with the words from the author of Hebrews. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradictions of sinners against himself. Look to him when you are tempted to be wearied, and faint in your minds. Let us pray together. O oh Lord our God, we 
confess to you that the footmen do weary us, and we cannot but blush for shame. So we come to you for strength. We wait upon you, for they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we pray, O Lord, that you would raise us up, that you would enable us to run and walk, that you would wash us and make us vigilant in our sanctification, that you would remind us that your oil, that your spirit rests upon our head. And may we ever live according to who we are in Christ, for we pray these things in his name. Amen.